Welcome to Are UFOs Real with T.L. Keller. This edition of Are UFOs Real is brought to you by the Total Novices Guide Books. I'm T.L. Keller, author and former aerospace engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, British Aerospace, and Douglas Aircraft, among others. On this program, we'll be looking into the myths and realities of unidentified flying objects, what most of us call UFOs. Why do people continue to report sightings of UFOs? Why do they report abductions, crop circles, and other highly strange events? All opinions expressed on this show are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of webtalkradio.net. And by the way, if you're a skeptic or you've had a UFO experience of your own and would like to appear on this show, at the end of the program we'll announce how to contact us. So strap yourself in and buckle up. You're in for a ride of your lifetime. We have a uh, terrific uh, show for you today. Uh, for the second time on, uh, we have uh, Michael Schrett. Now, uh, Michael is an aerospace historian and former uh, writer and editor for Open Minds uh, Magazine. Michael, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, Tom. Thank you very much. Well, we... Uh, we we promised uh, the last time you were on to uh, talk about S4, and of course the uh, the story about uh, Dr. Dan Burge. I think I should probably start off by saying that um, a year ago at the International UFO Congress in Scottsdale, uh, you put on a startling presentation, and this was basically um, a description of Dr. Dan Burge's experiences at a facility which is uh, commonly called S4. Now, just to make sure that uh, this is clear, um, this is close to what's called uh, Groom Lake, or Area 51. Uh, but the facility is about 10 to 12 miles south in the direction of Las Vegas. Uh, and it, the facility is, is actually under uh, Papoose Mountain. Uh, it consists of, uh, I believe, five or more stories of uh, various uh, research labs and hangars and what have you. Now, you put on a, a presentation um, to basically describe uh, not just the, the hangars, but the entire complex. And I don't know if we're going to be able to have uh, the time to do that today, but let's uh, get into the, the basic story here. Now, Dan Burrish uh, claims that he was a, a microbiologist that was hired on into this S4 facility, and he has described to you uh, what the facility looked like on uh, the ground level, or level one, and then other research labs uh, at uh, uh, lower levels. Uh, and this is all located uh, on Papoose Lake, and it's under uh, the Papoose Mountain, once again, about 10 or 12 miles south of Groom Lake, where the uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, maintains a research uh, development test and evaluation center for um, uh, aircraft and aerospace prototypes. So maybe you could just uh, describe uh, what would happen when you come in and land at the, uh, the heliport there uh, on uh, Papoose Lake. 
Well, uh, once again, good morning, Tom, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to be a part of your program here. Uh, I think you, you did a very well job laying this out. That was perfectly worded, Tom, perfectly worded. Uh, I suppose we should start out by stating that uh, everything that we'll be talking about today is available in a 65-page, very well-researched, documented, and illustrated uh, PDF file available at Open Minds website. Uh, go ahead and type in Project Aquarius at the key box search there, and you can pull this up. The other point to, to mention then, again, Tom, is that this uh, radio program interview is a call to anyone former, current, military, aerospace, Department of Naval Research uh, for any information that can confirm or provide additional technical details on this story. We'd like to get some independent confirmation, Tom. And how can they contact you, uh, Michael? They can contact me through my email address, which hopefully you can graciously put uh, as a link to this uh, interview. Yes, I certainly will. Okay, so let's let's get into this material. Um, on one side of the fence, Tom, uh, we have a lot of material to cover. I want to, you know, cover the the basic important points of this. But on the other side, I I don't want to rush this, so I want to take it uh, consistently slow as we go along. Uh, two quick points: this information, as of right now, technically speaking, is is technically unsubstantiated. It is unauthenticated. Um, at this point, it has not been confirmed by a third-party independent source. So I think that this is something that we, we have to lay out right at the beginning. Um, we really don't have any physical evidence to prove this. However, absence of evidence does not constitute evidence of absence. Okay, so just because we don't have the physical evidence to prove, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, within a court of law regarding this particular facility and the events that allegedly took place here, <clears throat> we should certainly uh, keep it as an open possibility. I agree. Oh, the, oh, just uh, Let me uh, just add one thing in here. Uh, you mentioned that there's no um, firm uh, substantiated evidence, but uh, just to make it quite clear, uh, years ago, in the early 90s, um, I uh, went out to uh, the Area 51 uh, fence uh, numerous times, uh, both at night and during the day. And as a result of I don't know how many trips out there, uh, I can assure uh, everybody that there is a facility there. Now, I don't know whether it's, whether it's called S4 or R2 or D2. It's there because I've seen these devices being tested at night, and this is not coming from Groom Lake, it's coming from about 10 or 12 miles south of Groom Lake. And these devices okay. are, are, are typically are being tested, at, were tested at, at night, and I've also seen them land during the day in broad daylight. So uh, there is a base there, I can assure everybody. Well, well, thank you, Tom. That that's absolutely important to know. I mean, the more pieces we can get to this puzzle, the better. I mean, absolutely, there's no question about it. Uh, other thing to keep in mind is, recall, Tom, that they they said man would never fly, right? Then they said that men would never break the sound barrier, and then on October 14, 1947, Chuck Yeager did that in the Bell X-1. Then they said we would never land on the moon, and that was done 
with Neil Armstrong in July of 1969. So here we see this pattern, this legacy of people stating that such things could not possibly be true. Even the scientists said that this could there's no way that there could be a facility here, that this could not be true, but yet we see throughout history this timeline, this legacy of breakthroughs of things actually being true when everyone said that it couldn't be true, Tom. Okay, so essentially, as you mentioned in the beginning, the, the two primary sources that we have right now that are still with us are Bob Lazar, who claims he was a government phys uh, physicist, and then Dr. Dan Burrish, as you mentioned, who was a microbiologist, and he claimed that he worked with an extraterrestrial known as a J-Rod at level 5 at Area S4. Okay, now, <clears throat> according to Lazar, if we just, you know, do the timeline of this, this account, um, he claims that there were nine hangar bays at Area S4, and he worked on the program of reverse engineering the propulsion systems of those craft at S4. And as you mentioned, Tom, it is located 12 miles south of Groom Lake, Area 51, also known as the Ranch. Um, now, this is a this is a story I want to relate very briefly. I think it's it's important to this overall account. Um, Lazar claims that when he got to Groom Lake, one time he saw a very quick glance of a top-secret classified aircraft, either known as Brilliant Buzzard or something called the TAV, which is the Trans-Atmospheric Vehicle. He described in detail what the aft end of that vehicle looked like. Now, as he was on the bus, he also stated that he heard a low-frequency rumbling noise which was described as something similar to the sound of the sky tearing or ripping apart. Uh, this is what Bob Lazar stated. I, I did speak to him uh, and met him personally, and he did describe this. Now, this is interesting because you may recall that Jim Goodall's good friend, Jim Goodall is a very interesting aviation researcher, and he has a good friend known as John Andrews. John Andrews was the senior project design engineer, special project groups at Testers Corporation. He was living in San Diego at the time. Uh, John is no longer with us, but you will not find a more uh, dignified, honorable, and respectable gentleman. This, his word is absolutely true. After... Uh, Bob Lazar spoke to John, and this is you know right around the time they were making the sport model for Tester's Model Corporation, and Lazar described this sound to John. John and Jim Goodall were near Area 51 at that time, and they heard the identical sound that Bob Lazar said he heard when this thing either was on a test or some type of takeoff roll at Groom Lake. So here we have secondary confirmation of this noise. Now this doesn't prove that he worked at S4, but this goes a long way to indicate that he was at least at Groom Lake and that adds more you know, valid authentication that he perhaps indeed was at S4, Tom. Okay, so we've got John Andrews down there. We, we know that uh, according to Dan Burrish, the gateway to Area 51 is the EG&G terminal at McCarran International Airport. 
from there, workers who work at either Groom Lake or S4 are flown to Groom Lake via Janet 737. Now, there's another point we should make, too. For at least 20 years, there's been rumors about, about Janet Airlines. Uh, what does Janet Airlines stand for? Is it a name? Is it an acronym? Is it a code name? Some people think it stands for something like Joint Army, Navy, Experimental, Tactical, something like that. Um, I have it on very good authority from a person who I will not mention at this time, but I know his name. He worked in security at Groom Lake for years. Janet is is the name of a flight attendant, and that's that is it right there. Um, Janet is the name of a flight attendant, so that's how they got that name. Hmm. Uh, once once you're on the Janet flight to Groom Lake, of course, it's a relatively uh, quick trip because it's only about 95 miles to get over the mountains to Groom Lake. As you um, are on your flight, um, according to Dan Burrish, now this is not me, this is Dan Burrish, he said that the music that they played over the public address system on the Janet Airlines was nothing more than Neil Diamond's Coming to America. And this was repeated over and over and over again. Dan Burrish made a very significant point that this is something that they did. So I asked Dan the question, was this an encrypted symbolic message indicating that more than just, you know, immigrants from other countries were coming to America as the song suggests, but in point of fact, is, are they trying to say that others from other worlds, extraterrestrials, are coming to America, specifically S4? And, and Dan said that is affirmative. That is correct. Mm. That is the message they're trying to portray. Okay, okay now to, I hope they didn't have to listen to that tune uh, all on every flight. <laughs> well, Dan said they repeated it constantly, so this is a significant point. Now, as you're approaching to landing at Area 51 Groom Lake, um, there's a code name that is coming from Dreamland Tower to the pilot of the Janet 737, and it's called Pyramid, Pyramid, Pyramid. That appears to be the, the landing clearance to land at Groom Lake. Now, an important point we need to make, Tom, is that when you're going to Groom Lake Dreamland airspace, it is the most guarded airspace in the world. The designation on sectional charts is R4808N, and really it's the most secure airspace in the world. Um, if you try to fly into to Area 51 without clearance from Dreamland, um, immediately they will scramble an F-16 and they will perform a thump maneuver where if you're flying in a Cessna 152, they will take that F-16 and they'll fly it directly perpendicular to your flight path so that when you fly into the jet weight, you could depart from controlled flight. After that, um, you will receive a final warning, and then beyond that, the, uh, the intruders will be neutralized with a sidewinder. So the, the lesson is try, do not uh, enter Dreamline airspace. Once you get to Groom Lake, according to Dan Burrish, there are three options to get to Area S4, which, as you mentioned, is 12 miles south of Groom Lake. Number one, you can take a blue colored bus, which is interesting because that's exactly what 
Bob Lazar mentioned too. So that that's a a cons consistent point. Inverish also stated that you could take a Black Hawk helicopter to S4 or Tom. Believe it or not, uh, Dan mentioned that you could take a Soviet Mi-24 Hind attack helicopter as well. So you know. This is just something he mentioned. I always thought that that was a very odd point because how many MI-24s are operating in America? Maybe one or two. I'm not sure, but it always seemed to me that that was a very odd point. But again, it's coming from Dan Burrish. So when you, when you arrive at the helicopter landing pad, Tom, uh, we're, we're entering the facility now. Uh, something we need to talk about Dan mentioned something called walking the line. So this would be from the time you egress the helicopter to the time you're walking to the entrance door at S4, which has those 60-degree angled textured hangar exterior bay doors that are built into the sides of that mountain that you mentioned so that it's very difficult for Soviet um, satellites to see what's actually going on. It blends in really good. Dan mentioned that when you walk the line, there are two parallel red lines and two parallel blue lines. The blue lines are the interior lines. And he mentioned that the black dressed, very oppressive commando security people at S4 stated that you are to stay within the blue lines. This is directly from Dan Burrish. If you depart those blue lines and break the boundary of the red lines, they will shoot you. And it's a no-nonsense, oppressive environment. This is exactly what Bob Lazar described, too. He described these machine gun Delta Force type black dressed uh, security personnel that were very oppressive. So once again, we have this confirmation from Lazar talking about the working environment. Okay, according to Burrish, there are f uh, five levels of Area S4. And it's interesting to note that when Lazar talks about S4, the, the section that he worked on was level one. And he also mentioned that in the interior of the hangar bay, there was a white colored circle with a black 41 in it. That stands for area S4, level one, four one. That's where that comes from. Okay, so now we should talk about who is running the facility. According to Burrish, uh, Operations performed at S-4 are under the jurisdiction of the Naval Research Laboratory in con conjunction with the Defense Intelligence Agency. This is interesting because Lazar also talked about how he got paid from the United States Navy. So it's not the, the Air Force that's running this, Tom. It's actually the, the Department of Naval Research, uh, the United States Navy. They're heading up this program, Tom. Yes, I remember uh, Bob Lazar saying that uh, years and years ago. That's that's correct. So this is something that Dan Burrish mentioned as well. So again, there's another point here. So we've already got four points that both of these gentlemen are actually agreeing on. Now, once you open up that main door, as soon as you walk into the level 4-1 of S4, you'll see a long hallway, a very, very long hallway. Immediately, immediately to your left, you're going to see this famous I Want to Believe poster. 
Okay, this is something that um, uh, Dan Bursch mentioned was there. To the right, there is some very nondescript office furniture. It's the badge area. So that's what you're going to see when you first walk in. As you further go down this hallway, to the left, there's an avionics lab. And also just um, aft of the avionics lab, there's the propulsion research. To the right, and this is interesting time. We need to, we need to cover this. To the right of that hallway, past that nondescript registration office furniture, there's something called the briefing room. Inside the briefing room, Tom, are something called TUTS, T-U-T-S, that stands for Training Update Tapes. And this is the, the video tape evidence of what's going on at S4. They have the Defense Technical Information Center three-ring binders there. They have the blue folders, which contain specific details on an extraterrestrial race known as the Orion. So the point being that if you ever wanted to get some very serious hard evidence for the existence of extraterrestrials, you would need to get access to the vault in the briefing room where these three ring binders and training update tapes are kept, Tom. That's exactly where you would want to go. Interesting point. Uh, Dan Bursch also mentioned that there was a copy of the 1954 agreement that was made between President Eisenhower and the P-52 Orions at Edwards Air Force Base. This is back in 1954. So there's a copy of that there as well. Now, this is interesting because there's a bit of a discrepancy here. I actually have some friends that work at Edwards Air Force Base, specifically inside the history office there, and I ask them, has there ever been any stories of President Eisenhower secretly being flown from Palm Springs to Edwards Air Force Base in 1954, where he met with extraterrestrials. I mean, is there any evidence to prove this? And, and what he told me is, um, he said that there are rumors of pilots sneaking planes out at night and, you know, drunken brawls and, and things like that. So, so if there was such a story, we would hear about it. We would have heard some rumor, some inkling of something, but we've never heard anything. So I don't know if, if I should take that as, the event never happened, or it just never came across their radar screen. But I just thought I would throw it out there. I tried to get some confirmation of this event some, from some people I trust that work in the history office there, and, and they said, nope, we, we haven't heard anything. So it doesn't mean it didn't happen. just means they didn't hear about it. Okay. So, again, going back to the, to the nine hangar base. Now, on top of this hallway, there's a catwalk. This is what, what Dan Burrish described. And just as a point of fact here, the working environment that we're talking about here was described as poorly lit and cold. So it's not a brightly lit area. It's, it's, it's dark. It's, it's a cold working environment. Dan Burrish said that every 10 feet, there was a security camera dome on the walls that looked just like the Vegas casinos. And this is every 10 feet. And then running diagonally down the gray painted walls, there was an 8-inch wide orange-colored stripe that ran diagonally because this place used to be a weapons research and testing facility before we know it as S4 today. So that's an important point to, to keep in mind, too. Hmm. I've never heard of that before. 
Okay. Yep. That's oh, what... uh, St. Michael, uh, could you just uh, stand by, please? Yep. Uh, our no conversation with Michael Shred, uh continues. T.L. Keller's Are UFOs Real? is brought to you by the Total Novices Guidebooks. Would you like to know more about UFOs but are afraid to ask? Why do so many people still report UFO sightings? Why are they even here? A new book, The Total Novices Guide to UFOs, introduces the reader to the world of unidentified flying objects. You may have accepted the stories of weather balloons, hoaxes and optical illusions as the explanation of the UFO phenomenon, but just take a look at The Total Novices Guide to UFOs and your worldview will change. This large format book is printed in full colour with more than 500 pages of fascinating reports of UFO crashes, ET abductions, crop circles and UFO related stories, including the testimonies of 10 military officers who experienced UFO events and extraterrestrial beings. The Total Novices Guide to UFOs also explains why they are here and who pilots them. The Total Novices Guide to UFOs is jam-packed with stories and reports from well-known UFO researchers such as Linda Moulton Howe, Timothy Good, Stephen Greer, Travis Walton, NASA astronauts Edgar Mitchell and Gordon Cooper. The Total Novices Guide to UFOs is available on the internet from the thetotalnovicesguide.com, amazon.com or from your local bookseller. Okay, and now we're back. Uh, okay. Keep going. <laughs> this so is we're going to... We're going to go right down the hangar base here, um, and let's let's go for it. So I just want to do a kind of a visual sight picture here. Let's just picture that you're on you're you're above the main hallway, but you're on something called the catwalk, and you're looking off to the left where you can see these different crafts. So in hangar bay one, we have no, we have. Uh, Bob Lazar's famous sport model that was a P-45 J-Rod ET craft. So that, this is exactly what Bob Lazar described. So that's what was in hangar bay number one. And they hangar bay the number term, two. They, they use the term sport model with uh, uh, Dr. Burrish, uh, just like Bob Lazar described his sport model uh, t over 20 years ago. Correct, correct, correct. Uh, Hangar Bay 2, Tom, contained an identical sport model craft. So it appears that the, the first two Hangar Bays were the same craft. Hangar Bay number 3, according to Dan Bursch, not me, he stated that Hangar Bay number 3 contained the Roswell craft that was uh, recovered in July 1947. It had a tarp that was partially covering the midsection the forward nose of the vehicle was sticking out. So that's hangar bay number three. Hangar bay number four was a P-52 Orion craft. Hangar bay number five, interestingly, was blank. It was empty. There was nothing there. Hangar bay number uh, six was a man-made reproduction of what was in hangar bay number three. So apparently they were doing kind of a reverse engineering man-made version of the Roswell craft. And this is how he described it to me. When he described what was in hangar bay number three, you know, and hangar bay number uh, six, it's like identical configurations. So what he's saying is that if you, if you took, if you wanted to find out what the Roswell craft looked like, 
what you would do is you would take the F-22, a top view of the F-22 Raptor stealth fighter, and you would remove the engines, remove the air intakes, remove vertical stabilizers, and then start at the nose of the aircraft and, and draw a spline curve through all the points of the exterior layout of the F-22. And when you're done, you're left with the Roswell craft. That's how he described it to me. And this is what they did with the man-made version, which is in hangar bay number six. That's exactly what it looks like. Okay, moving on to the next bay, that's seven. Uh, Dan Burr said that there was a tarp-covered craft that he could not identify. And that's all we know there. Hangar bay number eight was a black isosceles triangle. Hangar bay number nine was empty. So this is kind of a breakdown of what Dan Burr stated. Now, important thing that we need to note is there's a big difference between um, extraterrestrials and aliens. There's two different things. According to Dan Burrish, um, an extraterrestrial, they share our same genetic DNA makeup. An alien is a completely foreign entity whatsoever. So in point of fact, there were just a, you know, a number of extraterrestrial craft at S-4. There was one man-made version and one alien. So there's only one alien craft at S-4, according to Dan Burrish. Okay. Those uh, now, that just is an example, um, not to say this specifically about the um, the black um, pyramid uh, triangle um, right. device. It, it would be uh, from some civilization that um, was derived from some other form of life. Uh, for example, a reptilian. Um, in other words, it no, uh, there's no consistency between um, humans or uh, Homo sapiens and uh, these alien uh, beings. It, it does not share our DNA makeup. Right. Yes, right. that's what that's what Dan Burr said, and he also stated that the the consistency of the exterior on this quote unquote licorice uh, licorice drop. Um, it was kind of like almost a liquid black mercury exterior that you could. It was so. It was described as being just so incredibly. Uh, you could fall into it. He kind of stated a very unusual exterior configuration and appearance for that isosceles triangle. Now, as far as four um, one is con concerned, they also have the files department, the communications department, Tom, uh, fire emergency and supplies. We have the the kitchen supplies is there the cafeteria, and the dining area. Now, this is something that, that we need to, to keep in mind. When you work at S4, you just don't dine with your fellow workers, okay? They have this segregated. There's a very specific seating arrangement at S4 at the, at the cafeteria. And I just want to point this out. If you work in Project Galileo, you sit in the red seats. If you work in the weapons research facility, you work, uh, you sit on the black seats. And these are all color-coded. If you work on Project Looking Glass, you sit in the orange seats. If you work on Project Aquarius, you sit in the blue seats. So you can see, Tom, how they're quarantining and compartmentalizing the engineers and the people who work in the specific labs 
to only those who work on that project. And so that's another way that they maintain secrecy, Tom. Mm -hmm. That would uh, seem to make a lot of sense to me. You know, yeah. un unfortunately, uh, uh, we're uh, sort of running out of time here, and I'm going to have to have you back again, and we can talk about levels uh, two to five. Just sure. Have a couple of uh, uh, comments. Um, first of all, um, there was a Captain Bill Uhouse uh, who is now deceased. That's correct. Uh, he was brought in as a uh, mechanical engineer and uh, simulator uh, designer uh, developer, and he claimed to have also worked at S4. And his uh, uh, assigned responsibility was to help in building a flying disc simulator. And according to what uh, he said, uh, this simulator has been in operation uh, in various forms since uh, around the early 60s. And he seems to describe the very same uh, facility that uh, you've, you and uh, Bob Lazar have been describing. So there's actually three witnesses that have come forward, uh, one deceased, but uh, have come forward to talk about uh, the S4 facility. Also, yes, Tom, you're, you're, you're mentioning level 1-B, which right. Dan Burrish did mention. That is correct. Now, um, did uh, Dr. Uh, Edward Teller's name ever come up uh, with your discussion uh, with Dan Burrish? Absolutely. Dr. Edward Teller's name did come up. He, he was uh, involved. There, there's no doubt about it. Okay. Uh, Dan Burrish did mention his name. And so, again, this is something that Lazar had talked about as well. So yes, well, and, perhaps and, we've uh, got Captain five points House too. He talked about uh, Dr. Teller being uh, present uh, at uh, various uh, discussions uh, regarding the simulator. Okay, so that's something that um, Bill Uhouse mentioned. Yes, that Teller was okay. Okay. Yes. Um, okay. I just happened to have been googling um, um, Uhouse yesterday, and uh, his uh, his name was uh, was uh, mentioned. Also, I recently heard uh, Laura Eisenhower speak and she uh, personally is uh, very adamant that uh, the meeting between Eisenhower uh, and uh, these uh, extraterrestrials uh, did take place at Edwards Air Force Base but her family uh, denies it completely um, yeah who, who knows I know who knows it, uh, beyond that <clears throat> it's so hard to pin that story down, Tom. I mean, it, it really is. And, you know, if, if S4 is confirmed, if we get some absolute bombshell physical confirming evidence, it, it's the story of the millennium. It's, yeah. it's, the, it's the highest, it's the biggest story that we know of. Personally, I think it is because it's dealing with mankind's interaction with extraterrestrials. It is the overall story. It is, it is a personal account of someone who actually worked on a, on a personal basis with an extraterrestrial and why they were here, when they were here, and the entire story. To me, I think it's the biggest story. Uh, me too. And that's why you and I are doing this. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're involved in this, uh, <laughs> develop, these developments. Uh, okay, so let's, if you just once again mentioned um, your request. Yeah, my request is, I, I'm interested in, in, and for you too, Tom, as well, I'd like to get anybody who can independently verify this story. You can get all the, the details through openminds.tv, 
website where you can download the PDF file. Project Aquarius is the name of the document. It's all well illustrated. It is essentially um, you know, vetted by Dr. Dan Burrish himself. He is very well aware of this and was very you know, intricately involved in the creation of that document. So it's not like we're coming out of clear blue here. This is something that has been reviewed by someone stating that they were there and worked with an extraterrestrial on a personal daily basis. So we'd like to get some independent confirming information, Tom. Okay. All right. Well, let's see what we can do. Um, I might add that um, a DVD of Michael Schratt's uh, presentation at the uh, International UFO Congress uh, is available through the TotalNovicesGuide.com website. And uh, we will have uh, Michael back on a future show because we'd like to go into the uh, the lower uh, levels of the S4 facility with Michael. So thank you very much, Michael, for uh, for being with us today, and we look forward to your uh, continued uh, visits. Okay, thank you very much, Tom. To summarize what we've uh, learned, there is a real physical facility at Papoose Lake, 12 miles south of Groom Lake, and this facility is known as S4. It may consist of more than one and up to five underground levels. Allegedly, there are nine separate hangars variously storing extraterrestrial, alien, and alien reproduction vehicles made by our own U.S. government anti-gravity technology program. There have been three witnesses that have come forward regarding S-4. Bob Lazar, Dr. Dan Burrish, and the late Captain Bill Uhouse. And they've all said basically the same thing. And lastly, the facility has been in existence since at least the early 60s, and it is administered by the Office of Naval Intelligence and the Defense Intelligence Agency. Well, that winds up our uh, show for today. Are you a skeptic or have you had your own UFO experience? For those of you who would like to appear on Our UFOs Real, please contact us at tkeller at dc.rr.com. Thanks for tuning in and staying tuned. We hope this and future shows will truly be mind-opening.